Living in a so-called developed nation, it's difficult to imagine a crop shortage, especially one that forms the basis for so many food necessities. In the United States, for example, corn and grain are king, and without them, the widespread consequences will be nothing short of devastating. But a situation exactly like the nightmarish scenario I've described took place in Ireland in the mid-19th century. It lasted for seven years and was so devastating that, by its end, nearly one million people had lost their lives due to starvation. I'm referring, of course, to the notorious potato famine that, to this day, has left an indelible mark on that country's history. I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and welcome to a rather sobering episode of the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. Today, Ireland's a fiercely independent nation that, despite its proximity to Britain, hasn't been absorbed into the latter's union of three former kingdoms, England, Wales, and Scotland, plus the territory of Northern Ireland. This, however, wasn't always the case. I should note here that it took years of fighting and struggle to gain and maintain said independence, the like of which will be explored in a future episode. As early as the Elizabethan era, that is, the reign of Queen Elizabeth I in the 16th century, influence from the British Isles was certainly felt in Ireland, specifically with the establishment of Trinity College in Dublin, which was overseen by the monarch herself. Over the ensuing two centuries, English presence in Ireland grew considerably, with the upper classes and nobility buying up land and growing wealthy off the use of Irish labor. It wasn't until New Year's Day 1801, however, with the passing of the Act for the Union of Great Britain, that said influence culminated in the annexation of Ireland as a subject of the British Crown. With the incorporation of Ireland, the British government placed their own heads of state to rule over the newly acquired territory. Thus, the posts of Lord Lieutenant and Chief Secretary of Ireland were created, though the Irish people were allowed to elect representatives to the Parliament in London. In all, they sent 105 to the lower House of Parliament, known as the House of Commons, and 28 titled landowners, or peers, to the upper house, or the House of Lords. I should clarify from the outset that these officials were, for the most part, men of British origin, so the idea of Irish representation or voice in Parliament was limited. In addition, discrimination against Catholics was not only commonplace, but also promoted by law. Catholics, who comprised the largest religious group in Ireland at the time, weren't allowed to vote, hold office, or buy land. For 28 years, these so-named penal laws were the lay of the land, but even after their repeal in 1829, their effects were still being felt throughout the country, with English or blended Anglo-Irish families owning much of the land, and poor Irish Catholic tenant farmers forced to pay them rent. It was under such conditions and in just such a political climate that formed the backdrop of the potato famine. Though the potato is now an important and common crop found throughout Europe, it isn't native to the continent. It's what's called a New World crop, having been cultivated by the Incas of what's now Peru and South America for centuries prior to the arrival of the Spanish in the 16th century. With the conquest of Incan civilization by conquistador Francisco Pizarro, this tuber made its way back to Europe, whereupon it became a common food amongst the peasantry in the ensuing centuries in such disparate countries as the Netherlands, Germany, Greece, and of course Ireland. In Ireland, however, it wasn't introduced until the 18th century, when the landed gentry from Britain introduced it to the Irish people. The variety grown there, known affectionately as the Irish lumper, became the primary vegetable within the tenant farmer's diet, especially in the colder autumn and winter months. By the mid-19th century, the potato had become a veritable staple in the Irish diet, so much so that it was hard to imagine life without it, or what life had been like in the country prior to its introduction. But alas, they were soon set to find out, for in 1845 the crop began to fail. The culprit, it was discovered, was blight, an infestation of mold known as Phytophthora infestans, or simply P. infestans, that was largely confined to a couple rural farms in Ireland. However, this particular strain of the disease proved tenacious, and it soon spread throughout the rest of the country. 
With many tenant farmers now unable to provide sufficient food for themselves and their families, they implored the then-reigning British monarch, Queen Victoria, for aid. She initially delivered, ordering Parliament to repeal the Corn Laws of the day, as well as the tariffs on grain, bringing the price down on such products so that they were easier and more affordable to grow, cultivate, and buy, respectively. But while the cost of these went down, the prices of other supplies went up, and with no end in sight to the afflicted potato crop, thousands began dying of starvation or else malnutrition. Such problems were only exacerbated by the fact that Ireland at the time exported large quantities of food, primarily for British consumption, in the form of livestock, butter, peas, honey, rabbits, beans, fish, and other such products, thus selling what otherwise could have been their saving grace. In fact, recent studies conducted by historians reveal that Ireland exported more of their domestic foodstuffs during the famine than any other time prior to that period. Naturally, it was during this troubling time that the Irish peasantry began seeking better lives for themselves elsewhere. With commercial steam-powered maritime travel still a good three decades away, they had to rely on old clippers and sailing ships to transport them to new lands. The journey was perilous and fraught with dangers, to say the least, as disease was prevalent on such ships, especially since they were full to bursting with passengers. But they began departing en masse for such disparate places as Australia and Canada, both of which were subjects of the British Empire at the time, and of course, the United States. States. Between 1845 and 1850 alone, some two million Irish immigrants landed on American shores, particularly in New York and Boston, where they settled in the two city slums and destitute neighborhoods. As the United States was a predominantly Protestant nation at the time, the arrival of these Catholic adherents was met with a great deal of scorn and derision, and they were allotted the most menial of jobs and tasks, those that no one else would accept or do, for equally dismal pay. Still, even in the face of such adversity, they lifted themselves up and rose to prominence, eventually occupying the highest positions and offices in the land, from local, particularly New York and Boston politics, to the White House and presidency, opportunities that would never have been afforded them had they stayed in their home country. It would take a whopping seven years for the potato crop in Ireland to recover from this particularly nasty strain of blight. By the time it did, in around 1852, an estimated one million Irish citizens, men, women, and children alike, had perished. One to two million more had fled the country forever, seeking shelter and a new life in distant lands across the globe. But those who remained behind faced an uncertain future, and a nation and economy decimated by this most hard-hitting of historic events. Perhaps not surprisingly, due to the British government's lack of effective planning in response to the crisis, an emerging patriotism led to several movements in favor of Irish independence from the British crown, the waves of which would echo and reverberate for some seventy years, until, at last, it broke away in 1921, following the Irish War for Independence. But it's still unclear, slash hotly contested, as to whether the British did little at the time out of malice towards the Irish poor, or simply because they were too incompetent or ill-equipped to handle this most unusual situation. Regardless, during his tenure as Prime Minister of Britain, Tony Blair issued a formal apology to the Irish people on behalf of the British government's handling of the situation in 1997. In the years since the famine, relations between the two countries were initially strained, but have improved significantly in the late 20th and early 21st centuries. The Irish potato famine has left an indelible mark on the nation's history, and is one of the most significant, if not the single most significant, event in its more recent times. Not only did it spawn an entire movement, one whose ripples can be felt all the way up to the present, but it led to the establishment of ethnic Irish enclaves throughout the world, particularly in such places as Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and the United States. Today, several memorials to this disaster can be found not just in Ireland, but in those self-same countries. Cities such as Toronto, Montreal, Philadelphia, 
Phoenix, New York, and Boston all have erected tributes to both the Irish immigrants fleeing the disaster, as well as those who died in Ireland or en route. The Glasgow Celtic FC, a soccer team in Scotland founded in part by Irish immigrants affected by the potato famine, adopted in 2017 commemorative patches on their uniforms to honor the victims. Quinnipiac University in Connecticut has gone even as far as to open a museum, the Great Hunger Museum, the first of its kind on foreign soil, to act as a resource for those interested in researching, studying, or simply learning about this tragedy. Luckily, a natural calamity like the Irish potato famine hasn't happened since. While the circumstances behind it were indeed tragic, we have it to thank for Irish communities throughout the world, namely in Britain, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and the United States, among others. This obviously doesn't make up for the million-plus lives lost, but it shows the tenacity and resilience of the Irish people to continue, to persevere, to venture into the unknown in the hopes of starting life anew. Were a similar disaster to take place today, one would hope that the government or governments involved would have the resources to handle such a situation, though here's hoping nothing of its scale and scope ever occurs again. Thank you so much for joining me again this week for an episode that's admittedly not the most upbeat. Still, the Irish potato famine was a natural disaster the like of which the country hadn't seen before, or thankfully hasn't seen since, and hopefully never will see again. If you found this episode enlightening and wish to stick around to see what else I have up my proverbial sleeve, please consider supporting this podcast. Simply go to podcasters.spotify.com forward slash pod forward slash show forward slash history loves company, all one word, and click the support button. From there, you'll be redirected to three monthly support plans that fit your budget. Listening and sharing also help me in big ways, so please do so wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in again next week for a war between two disparate people over a seemingly unlikely cause, right here on the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you next time. Thank you.